Hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. My name is David Ritchie, and I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer. Our services are at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays at 3701 South Sauncy in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about our vision for ministry, please visit our website, RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Today, I'm bringing a sermon preached on October 21st, 2012, that was not recorded due to technical difficulties. I am continuing a series on the idea of Christian joy, and we're going to be looking at this idea of joy by studying the book of Philippians, line by line, verse by verse. And here's what I want you to understand as we dive into this study. What you think about joy is one of the most important ideas you will ever think. Your personal conception of joy determines everything that you do in life. When we begin to delve into the words of Scripture, we see that the Bible has a brilliantly different and utterly unique rendering of joy. You could even say that Christianity is all about your joy. But the joy offered to us in the gospel is completely different than what you are used to. Usually, this joy is completely dependent upon our circumstances. If we have a lot of pleasure or little or no pain, we will have joy. But if our world falls apart, we lose our joy. This is why so much of our energy is spent by trying to control, change, or protect our circumstances. The gospel is offering us something different. The gospel doesn't lie to us and claim that Jesus will get us around pain. Rather, the gospel shows us how to go through pain. Christianity doesn't promise to take away your loneliness, fear, or grief. Rather, it shows us how to have deep, abiding, and very real joy even in their midst. I desperately want Redeemer Christian Church to be a church of Christian believers that is known for our deep sense of joy. And this is why we are spending a season studying the book of Philippians. Philippians is about having joy in Christ despite the work's circumstances. Paul, the author, is the first ever missionary to Europe. The Church of Philippi, the recipients of this letter, was the first church he planted in Europe. At the time this book is written, Paul is in jail. He is alone, and he is looking death in the eye. After receiving some encouragement and help from the Philippian Christians, as he is in prison, he decides to write the church in Philippi one of the most important thank you notes in history. The result is the New Testament book of Philippians. And in this book, we see something extraordinary about Paul. This little old man has every reason in the world to be depressed out of his mind as he withers away in prison. And yet, through the words of this letter, we see that he is filled with joy. We are going to spend this time talking about why he had this joy and how we can have it too. Today's sermon, we are going to talk about how the gospel gives us joy in the midst of opposition. The title is Joy for the Opposed. So with that in your mind and your heart, you can please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 3, where we will begin our study today. This is Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's word. Now let's unpack what's happening here. In this text, we see something unique in Paul's tone. We know that he is in prison, and that in this letter we have seen a sense of weakness, discouragement, and disappointment. But here we see anger. Certain false teachers are opposing the mission of Paul and the faith of the Philippians, and he has some very bold words to say about them. There are false teachers going around Asia and Europe trying to infiltrate the churches that Paul has planted with a false, heretical version of Christianity. Nevertheless, in the midst of this opposition, not to mention the opposition from his Roman subjugators and the temptations of worldliness and sin, Paul is determined to have joy. If you give your life to serve Jesus Christ, you will experience opposition. You can be sure of it. Over the years, we've seen a false Americanized Christianity get a lot of press and influence. It's a false teaching known as the prosperity gospel. And in this false gospel, Jesus is not your source of joy. Rather, he is presented as the most effective means for you to have convenience in life. This teaching basically boils down to the idea that Jesus is here to help you get the things that will make you happy and give you joy. All you have to do is play the game. I gave away my car and God gave me a better car. I gave away my better car, and God gave me a plane. I gave away my plane, and God gave me a spaceship, and I gave away my spaceship, and God gave me a Death Star. Also, my life is happy and without sickness, pain, and death, because if I scratch God's back, he will scratch my back. Now, while I believe that God is a good father that wants to bless his children, 
you need to know that this is not the gospel. The gospel will not make you avoid opposition in this life, but it will help you go through it in victory. But you will have opposition nonetheless. There was a season after I began truly serving Jesus, during which my life seemed to be as happy as could be. I thought it might always be this way, but as I have served him over the years, I have found that if you are walking in the call of God for your life, you will be opposed. I have experienced opposition from inside the church and outside the church. I've had Christians try to defame and slander my name. I've been maligned and mistrusted, and I've had the purity of my motives brought into question. Outside of the church, I've had seasons which it seemed like the whole world was against me. I've been mocked by my professors because of my choices and beliefs. I've experienced unbelievable family tragedy, and I've gone through seasons of depression. I've seen opposition. And in this opposition, I have been really tempted to either justify myself in self-righteousness or succumb to sin and worldliness. But I've also seen the faithfulness of God. And it was in his presence, through all this opposition, that God has given me joy. For you, when it seems like the whole world is against you in opposition, the Bible tells you that you can and that you need to rejoice. And I believe that our text shows us how. In this text, we see how to joyfully overcome the three enemies that will oppose us. Those enemies are, number one, false religion. Number two, false righteousness. And number three, false reality. Number one, false religion. In the first few verses of chapter three, Paul makes reference to a group of false teachers who were going around attempting to spread a false Christianity. These were a group of Jewish men who were trying to force Gentile Christians into observing the Jewish law. They believed and taught that salvation came only through performing up to the ritualistic standards of the Old Testament, like dietary restrictions and male circumcision. This is why Paul calls them those who mutilate the flesh in verse 2. And Paul has some very strong trash talk for these guys. He calls them dogs and evildoers. You get the sense that he is so angry that he wants to bust through the bars and wall of his prison and go Liam Neeson and taken on them. He is angry because his ministry is being opposed by a false religion. But this really should make us ask the question, why? Why on earth would Paul be concerned by this false doctrine? Why would anybody find it attractive? Does he really think that Christians of the Philippian church would fall prey to a teaching that would make an adult male have to go undergo a very uncomfortable procedure on a very sensitive part of his body? But Paul knows that religion is very attractive, and it's still just as attractive today. False religion will be one of the greatest oppositions to your joy in the gospel. The reason that religion is attractive is because control is attractive. Religion puts you in the driver's seat of your own salvation. It's the idea that what Jesus did was nice, but really it's our own external performance that determines our salvation. Do you know why the false teachers liked circumcision? It was an external sign of salvation that had nothing to do with the condition of the heart. We basically trade our performance for God's blessing. Now, this false gospel of behavior modification is functionally the same religion of much of the Bible Belt in America. Maybe there isn't as many guys going around advocating circumcision, but how many times have you heard Christianity reduced to simply not drinking, not cussing, not watching rated R movies and attending church? 
Do you know that it is possible to do all of those things and be totally cold to God? Precisely because you're looking to your behavior for salvation. This mindset is not the gospel. It's man-made religion. Religion says, I obey, therefore God must accept me. It is motivated by pride. But the gospel says, I have been accepted by God, therefore I must obey. It is motivated out of gratitude. In religion, the focus is on all what I must do. But in the gospel, the focus is on what Jesus Christ has already done. Religion gives you the despair of a never-ending quest for better performance. The gospel gives you the joy of being righteous and accepted in Christ. The gospel is so good that it almost seems like a license to sin, but nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, the gospel is your only hope to ever be righteous. The gospel and false religion may seem similar on the outside, but in reality, they couldn't be more opposite. This is why Paul says that those who are redeemed by the gospel of Jesus are the real circumcision, and that he reminds us to put no confidence in the flesh, but to worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. This is the only way to defeat the opposition of a false religion. And it leads us to our second point. Point number two, false righteousness. If you start to functionally believe this type of false religion, you will develop a false righteousness that will oppose your joy in Christ. This is the type of ugly, prideful, joyless religious behavior that is hideous to everyone else, but is often hidden to the person who has it. So, in Paul's day, the result of accompanying the false teaching that was going around was that men went around trying to out-Jewish one another. The thought went that the more Jewish you were, the more righteous you were. This is why Paul takes a moment to tell a little bit of his biography in verses 4 through 6. Paul had more reason to hope in his personal righteousness than anyone else. He was a pure Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. He spoke Hebrew. He was blameless in the law. And in his past life, he was so zealous about Judaism that he persecuted and murdered Christians. Nevertheless, Paul makes a shocking statement about these credentials. He counts them as rubbish, the Greek word skubala in verse 8. Here in the ESV, the translation renders the word as rubbish. But the reality of the Greek is a little harsher than that. It is an offensive word that means useless human excrement. Maybe you can think of a better English word. It might seem shocking that the Bible talks this way, but it does. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it does the same thing when it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Here again, the translators are a little timid to give us the full flavor. And the words polluted garment in the Hebrew mean minstrel garments. This is offensive language. But isn't it curious that this type of language is only used in situations when God is admonishing his people not to trust in a false sense of their own righteousness? Let me tell you, we still do this today. You still do this today. We are all guilty of trying to present our resume of our own righteousness before God and man. We do this to each other in the Bible Belt all the time. Maybe you're a part of a more traditional and intellectual tradition, and you're really proud of your hymns and the fact that you know about presuppositional apologetics, and you look down on people who don't. 
Maybe you're part of a more contemporary tradition, and you're really proud that you wear jeans to church and that you pray in tongues every day, and you look down on others who don't. You are both equally as religious, and you are both trusting in a false righteousness that comes from yourself and not from God. You need to reject trusting your own righteousness so that you can receive the righteousness of God. Your only hope is knowing and receiving the true righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't need moral reformation. You need mortal resurrection. You were dead in your trespasses. You had nothing to offer God. And this is key to understand. Otherwise, when opposition comes into your life, you're going to get mad at God and your joy will be ruined because you think he owes you blessing because of your so-called righteousness. Pastor Timothy Keller of New York says it this way, If you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, and even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. Point number three, false reality. In the last two paragraphs of our text, we see Paul charging the Philippians to be aware of the greater reality of what lies ahead. He talks with tears in his eyes about former friends who are now living for the fleeting pleasures of this world. Their God is their belly, not Christ. They are living for this world and not the kingdom of God. They are living in a false reality because their minds are fixed on earthly things. But Paul reminds the Christians of Philippi to think of themselves as citizens of heaven. This is a very powerful analogy because the city of Philippi is actually an official Roman colony. So if you were born in Philippi, you were a Roman citizen, and you were entitled to certain rights wherever you went. You were also expected to live with a certain degree of honor. Paul is a man who is not caught up in these desires and the value systems of his own culture. He is longing for a better world, his true and better home, and so should we. We are called to be a people living in the hopeful anticipation of God's kingdom, So much of the temptations of worldliness stem from us buying into the lie that this world can give us true joy. It can't. But heaven will. Jesus will. So don't buy into the false reality and the false pleasures of this world. The world is putting before you all these things that won't satisfy you. It won't give you real joy. In the same way, the Apostle John says it this way in his first epistle. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is showing us that this present world should have no claim to the allegiance of our hearts. If we are going to overcome the opposition that this world throws at us, from the temptations to sin or sinful people wanting our harm, we must stir ourselves to an awareness and a desire of a heavenly reality that outshines the fleeting shadows that this world has to offer. That like Paul, we might press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The way to overcoming our desire for sin is not to eliminate our desires like Buddhism, but is to truly satisfy our desires in their surpassing worth of knowing Christ. 
Because in Jesus, we find the fullness of our joy that nothing in this world could ever compete with. Professor C.S. Lewis said it this way, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The gospel must rewire us. It goes against everything we've ever believed. We are trained to think that our value is determined by our performance and that our reward is blessing in this world. We must saturate our thinking in grace and place our hope and joy in Christ and the world that is to come where we will share unbroken communion with him. If we do this, we will be invincible against any opposition that would come against our joy in this life. So I want to challenge you this week to do some heart surgery. I want you to ask yourself some hard questions and let God's Holy Spirit challenge and change you. So here are some questions for personal prayer, application throughout the week, as well as discussion in your community groups. Do you often believe that your relationship with God is based on your performance? How has this robbed you of joy? What does it look like in your life to present a resume to God? And what does it practically look like to trust the finished work of Jesus instead? How can we better train our hearts to find our joy in Christ rather than in the fleeting pleasures of the world around us? Living in this renewed mindset is only possible when we are truly centered on the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. Even within Christianity, it is really easy to get distracted from the gospel. We start worrying about so many things that we forget the very core of our faith. We start reliving in religion when we should be celebrating our gospel. This is why Paul says elsewhere that he even has to determine to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. You have to make that determination as well. The only way you will ever get out of the habit of presenting your resume to God is when you have a personal revelation that there has only been one person in the entirety of world history that had a truly perfect resume. And rather than take and enjoy the privilege of his righteousness, Jesus took the penalty of our sin so that we could receive his perfect righteousness. More than that, knowing Jesus is surpassingly more joyous than anything we could ever know. He is worth enduring the most trying of opposition because he loved us so much that he endured opposition for our sake. This is a revelation that will humble you. But it is a revelation, even when the world is opposed and against you, that will give you true and abiding joy. Amen.